Hey, what's up everybody? How's it going? I hope you're having a great morning. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Resurrection City. And I just want to say thank you again, just like kind of echoing what Julie said earlier. If you're just joining us today, uh, thank you for being here. There's a lot of stuff uh, you could be doing this morning on your laptop and you're choosing to spend it with us. We're very, we're very grateful for that. So thank you for being here. For those of you who we would normally be seeing on a Sunday morning right now, uh, we miss you. We're, we're looking forward to the day when we can uh, worship together, celebrate together, come together in, uh, in uh, a normal uh, setting, and we're looking forward to that. We're praying that that day comes here sooner rather than later, but uh, for now, we're, we're excited that we can be with you in your home, so it's good to see you all. Um, like, we, like Julie said, we're going to be uh, going through a message right now. We're continuing in the book of John. We're going to be finishing off the sort of really uh, famous section in John chapter 3 where uh, Jesus talks to Nicodemus, um, kind of picking up where Julie left off last week. And if you do have questions uh, from uh, the sermon, if you do have uh, something you want me to clarify on or have a question of something I don't quite get to, uh, throw it in the comments uh, throughout the sermon and we will, uh, we will make sure we try and get to that after we're done. All right, so what I want to do is I want to uh, read, the, read the whole passage. So read what Julie had last week. It's just nine verses. And then what we're going to be walking through this week. So you have a little bit of context, have a little bit of understanding of how it all sort of fits together. It was such a, a, a rich, deep passage. We just felt like we, couldn't, we wouldn't be doing it justice by spending only one week on it. So that's kind of why we made the decision to break it up. And, and just a reminder, in the book of John, uh, John is revealing Jesus, the Word who has become flesh. And he sort of is intentionally doing it layer by layer, pulling it back more and more of who Jesus is, what he has come to do and, and, and what that revelation of Jesus and that kingdom of God, or what John is going to refer to today as eternal life, looks like. So, so think of it like that. Think of it as sort of this peeling back, this cumulative effect of like unveiling who Jesus is. And today is actually one of the, one of the biggest sort of revelations of all. So let me re- re- read through this here. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one uh, could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. 
This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plain, uh, seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So this is a very important passage. You can kind of sense that if you've never read it, hearing it. And if you have, uh, if you have, if there's something in there that's familiar to you, I'm sure it's verse 16. Um, if you grew up in the church, chances are this is the first verse you memorized. Uh, I know that uh, everybody in my church knew this verse from a very early age. It's kind of a quintessential uh, Christian verse. Uh, it's kind of one that gets quoted. You'll see it at uh, sporting events, on signs. People will have it up. You'll see people on the side of the road holding this up. It's a, it's a very important verse, and it's important that we sort of understand what it's talking about because we use it so much. I think it's a good thing that we reflect on this verse, that we center on it, but it's good for us to have a good understanding of what it is too. So what I want us to do is to, to, to unpack that today. So remember, Jesus is explaining the coming kingdom and what it looks like to live in it, specifically uh, that transition into it. And Jesus, or Julie kind of talked a little bit last week uh, about what it looks like. New birth, uh, the spirit, like the wind, you can't see it, you can't control it. You can't grasp it yourself, it kind of grasps you instead. That's what Jesus is saying. And this gives someone like Nicodemus some issues. We're going to see what that looks like here as we go through the sermon. So uh, let me just jump right into the text. We're going to kind of unpack some of the stuff we just read. Uh, so John 3, 9 to 11. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. So now we talked about skepticism a few weeks back. We kind of looked at the case study or the story of Nathaniel, who was skeptical of Jesus' movement and how Jesus responds to him and what John kind of has to say about the idea of skepticism and in a sense kind of praises it. Now we come up on a different type of skepticism here. And this is one that is, uh, for John and for Jesus, something a little less to be commended. And that is uh, the, the, the skepticism of Nicodemus that can't understand what Jesus is saying because it doesn't fit what he has already received as his learning or his wisdom. Um, so when Jesus says to him in verse 10, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things, what, what, what he's probably talking about is, uh, Israel's teacher, it probably is some sort of uh, official title. When Jesus says that, he's probably referring to some uh, specific role that Nicodemus had. Um, he's, it suggests that he's like a recognized master, an established religious authority, someone who, who has a PhD in the Old Testament and whose job it is to sort of teach that to the people of Israel. So Jesus has talked about uh, a water and spirit from the Old Testament. Julie unpacked that last week. If you missed that, you can go back and watch that on our YouTube channel or uh, we have it on, online on iTunes and Spotify as well. Um, but, but Nicodemus is, is kind of dumbfounded. He, he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. And, and the reason is because Nicodemus is part of this group called the Pharisees who kind of have their own sort of understood wisdom and learning about what it looks like to sort of inherit and belong to and enter into the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus's response kind of shows this sort of like strong, maybe almost an arrogant retort to Jesus. How can this be here? How can this happen? He says, I've never heard of this before. This seems to be against the wisdom of what, what I have received. And Jesus responds to him in verses 12 and 13. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven 
the Son of Man. So Nicodemus's issue here is that he refuses to accept out of hand that God's kingdom could be coming apart from his learning, as specifically as a Pharisee. Uh, and and um, it, it shows kind of like a, an attitude or a, a heart state from Nicodemus and other Pharisees, and we'll see this in the book of John as we move forward, that just reflects a, 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 a not, not, not being humble, not, not being willing to learn from any source other than their own circles. And so you'll see them try to fit Jesus into their own box sometimes, sort of get, try to say, you know, oh, oh, why don't you put this for us so we can kind of uh, recognize it officially as being from God. And Jesus is saying, dude, here's the deal. I'm f- I, I am from God, okay? I, I, have, I don't need to learn about God from you. I've come from heaven itself. I've experienced God. I've seen God. I, I, I know God. I am God. So you need to have the humility to recognize that when I say this is what God is doing, this is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom, that I know what I'm talking about. And, and I think for us, like this is the first point of application for us today, that God comes to us apart from our learning and wisdom by his spirit. Now maybe he'll come in it, maybe he'll come, he'll come by it, but we are not going to condition or grasp God on our own just because we have learned a certain amount of wisdom towards it or we think we can kind of reason our way to God. Now, most of us are very well educated. I know that's true of a lot of the people who go to Red City or who might be watching this today. Well educated, sort of used to solving problems with our brains. And so what happens when that's kind of your mindset, you've learned to do that, is you can be tempted to do to God what you do with everything else. To use your reason, to use to work hard, to study, and to kind of come up with some conclusion that you've found about God and describe God as this way. Now, here's the thing. You can't treat God like you treat everything else. You can't sort of uh, build your way to God through study. Study is good. Reason is good. Uh, learning is good. And, and it all fit under the umbrella of knowing who Jesus is. But you can't put the cart before the horse. You can't assume you've grasped God and think that God is only God because you've reasoned your way to him. Uh, we don't know God. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. We don't necessarily know God we're known by God, and in that we come to know Him. And so we have, to, uh, we have to sort of repent or stop ourselves from trying to rationalize our way to God, a God that we want to build, because that's, what that is, is that's idolatry. That, that's the same thing that, that uh, idol builders in, in, the, in the ancient time that Jesus is talking would, 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 would build their own idols, to so sort of build it of their own reason. This is what we think God must look like. This is what I've God is like, and you sort of build your way to getting to that. Now, this is how we today get to the idea of a sort of maybe a, a conservative, gun-toting, nationalistic Jesus, or how we get to a sort of meek and mild, politically correct, bleeding heart, progressive Jesus, or or a God who condones slavery. That's a God that we've seen people build a, a, under their own reason in the past, or or maybe a God who's far away, who doesn't really care that much about what we're doing as long as we're happy. He just is here to sort of be our therapist in the sky. Whatever it is. These are the sorts of gods that we build when we start to kind of let our reason or our rationality build a God for us instead of experiencing him. And so um, if that's the sort of God you want, you're going to get what you want from that God. If you want to not grow, not to endure, not to persevere, that, this, the God you build, the God you reason your way to is going to tell you to do that, 
right? You don't, he's going to tell you, you don't need to read your Bible. You don't need to seek to grow spiritual fruit in your life. You don't need to preach the good news of the gospel. You don't need to seek out the welfare of the city. You don't, whatever you think is most important now, then you, that's what you should do because that is for sure the most important thing, right? Uh, he's not going to make you uncomfortable at all. He's not going to make you take responsibility for yourself. He's not going to call you to be vulnerable. I want you to stick that, right? put a piece of gum on that, stick it under your chair and save that for later. Okay, We're going to talk a little bit, little bit about vulnerability and what it's like to experience God in a vulnerable, vulnerable way later in the sermon. But uh, if you build a God on your own, it's never going to make you uncomfortable. And the God that Nicodemus and the Pharisees construct with their reason, with their, with their own understanding, looks a lot like them. And we do the same thing with the gods that we can construct. Okay? And in the midst of this, 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 this pandemic that we're in, right, there's a lot of upheaval. And I think one of, the, one of the really exciting things about that is God is going to be revealing himself to us in new and fresh ways. Whether, that's, whether we've known God, we've loved him for our whole lives, or we've never experienced him before, I really believe God is going to be sort of revealing himself to us in new and fresh ways. And you are going to miss out on that if you already think you know God perfectly. If you already think you've got all the understanding there, you're going to just miss out on him because you're unwilling to, re- to receive him as he reveals himself to you, just kind of like what Nicodemus is doing. So what, what Jesus does now is he's, he, he continues to sort of tell Nicodemus what type of God he's revealing apart from what what Nicodemus expects because of his learning. So in verses 14 and 15, uh, Jesus says, Just as Moses was lifted up up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus is, this is called an illusion. You see this a lot of times in the New Testament, where where an author or a character will uh, sort of... um, draw forward an entire story from the Old Testament just by sort of alluding to it, by, by referring to it or bringing out some language. And what Jesus is referring to here is it, from Numbers, the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. He's talking about the snake that gets lifted up in the wilderness. So let me just give you a little bit of background on that because it's a fleeting reference, but it's actually packed with a lot of meaning. And so you kind of have to get the understanding of that to really understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus knows Nicodemus knows his, his, uh, his Hebrew scriptures well, so he doesn't need to unpack it for him. But for us, we might need to, to sort of hear that a little bit. So uh, in Numbers 21, you have the people of Israel. They've been set free from slavery. It's sort of the quintessential story of the Jewish people, is that they were, they were slaves in Egypt. They were set free by God. And they go out to the wilderness, and, and, and their leader is a man named Moses, and he's taking the people of Israel to the promised land, which is this place that God is setting aside for Israel that will be their own place, where they're not going to be uh, subjugated, they're going to flourish, they're going to have a perfect dwelling with their God in being his presence. It's a land that God says is flowing with milk and honey and unlimited toilet paper. It's just the, the perfect place that you can imagine. Now, from Egypt to where the promised land is at, it should take about two weeks to travel there. It takes Israel 40 years to get there. Okay, and you're probably like, wow, that must have been some like pretty terrible uh, GPS that they had or something like that. But the reason that it takes them so long, it takes the whole sort of book of, of Numbers and, and Leviticus and uh, Deuteronomy to kind of tell the story of them finally arriving at the promised land. The reason is, is because we find it's what the people of Israel 
actually want. They actually don't want to go to the promised land. As much as they've said that we want to be free, they, when they're confronted with that freedom, you actually find that they kind of are still pulled back towards the slavery, back towards what they found to be comfortable, living in subjugation to the people uh, of Egypt. And so what they do is actually send 12 spies into the promised land, and, and two of them are like, this is it. This is exactly what we were told that God was um, going to prepare for us. This place is incredible. It's better than you could ever imagine. But 10 of the spies can't help but focus on how hard it's going to be for them to move into the land. You're like, there's some pretty big dudes already living there. And like, you know, it's kind of scary. And are we sure we can trust God to help us take the land? Maybe it'd be better if we just went back to Egypt. We kind of know what to expect in that place already. And, and so the, these 10 spies are able to convince the rest of the people of Israel that it's better for them to not enter the promised land. And they actually start a rebellion. They try to appoint a new leader other than Moses who's going to take them back, back to uh, Egypt, back to slavery, which is, which is crazy if you think about it, right? But it is actually a little bit understandable that they, that they value that familiarity of slavery. Even though it was terrible, they felt like, well, that's better than the unknown. That's better than having to trust God in the midst of this. And so... God says, no, I am not taking you back to Egypt. That is not happening. But if you don't want to go to the promised land, that's fine. We can hang out in the, in the desert for 40 years, and I'll take the next generation of people, your, your children, into this land because they will have grown up without this sort of uh, reflecting back on Egypt, that this understanding that this promised land is where they're supposed to live, dwelling with me. And so God cares for them in the midst of the wilderness, and what happens, we find they continue to try to work their way back to Egypt. They kind of continue to complain and start these rebellions. And in chapter 21, and this is where uh, Jesus is referring to, we find another rebellion takes place. And actually, God allows, th this rebellion takes place, they try to get Moses to take him back to Egypt again. And God actually allows some venomous snakes to sort of come into the camp. And, 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 and some of them are bitten and some of them die. And, and I think what's happening here is God is sort of symbolically, perhaps, giving them over to what they'd get in Egypt, uh, which would be just death and venom. Uh, being afflicted by snakes is basically the same thing. He's sort of showing them that. And, and what happens is they do repent, at least of this rebellion. They repent of grumbling and complaining here. Um, and God, sort of bursting forth in love, despite all of the frustration and rebellion that he's experienced at the hands of this people, um, gives them life. And he tells Moses to uh, build this sort of... Uh, bronze serpent that's going to go on a pole. It's going to go up in the middle of the camp. And whenever someone is bitten by a snake, they just have to look at this bronze snake on the staff and the, the poison that is in them will be taken from them and it will be replaced with life. They'll be healed of that venomous snake bite. Now, when Jesus makes the reference back to that pole, he's talking about how he is going uh, to be lifted up on a, on a pole. And all of the people who look on that, who are infected with a different type of poison, sin, can look at that and believe in that and find life. And so that this image uh, from the Old Testament gets brought into the New Testament. And it's, and it's a different type of snake that is afflicting people and is a better type of life that is being offered here. And so Nicodemus is being challenged to look to Jesus and to find life just like his ancestors did with the snake. Now, John kind of transitions into sort of, it's probably John who picks up speaking here, into sort of a commentary on what Jesus has just told Nicodemus. And this is where we get to verse 16, the famous verse now. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, 
and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Okay, so let's break this up. There's a, this is a dense passage, and I kind of want to break it up and kind of talk about what specifically is being said here. So let's start with the God so loved the world part, specifically the idea of love. Now, we tend to ask this question, uh, does God love us? And we, 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 we ask the question specifically defined to our circumstances. And so it's, it's a very sort of normal thing, I think, for us to look at something like coronavirus, a pandemic that's infecting the world, and ask the question, well, does God love us? And actually, this is a very modern way to ask the question, does God love us? Because, because what we're doing is we're breaking uh, God apart from the biblical story where God reveals himself and his love. And we can't do that. Those two things have to go together. If we want to understand how God loves us, we have to put it in the context of the story where God's love for us is unfolded in Jesus. And so John is telling us that God loves us with a kind of love that can't be quantified, it can't be contained, contained it can't be conditioned, and it gets manifested in this story of God coming in a person, being lifted up, and taking our poison on himself. So God's love is not just some emotional state of being, some sort of like feeling of good vibes and love towards other people, right? It's, it's a person and it's an action. So I, I don't know how many of you grew up reading Calvin and Hobbes. I know Calvin and Hobbes was one of my favorite comics growing up. And it's always fun to, to, to see the things that Calvin, the, the, the six-year-old kid, is imagining, like all the stuff his parents make him do, he kind of is able to imagine these sort of like diabolical things that his parents or his teachers are up to, right? And it's funny, it's funny because like we know that like that's not what his parents are doing. His parents are actually loving, they look out for this kid, um, and, and they want his best, but Calvin doesn't get it because he's a six-year-old kid. And Calvin, you know, just like any kid, doesn't really understand his needs. So his parents are meeting his needs in love. Calvin doesn't get it. He wishes that Calvin would, or his parents would meet his, his needs in other ways. Uh, and we, we, just, we laugh because we know what's going on here. Now, we talked earlier about how God comes to us apart from our reason. And what we do is we, we reason to our great needs. We feel sometimes like God isn't meeting them. We get angry at God. We feel like he doesn't love us. But what if... Our best reasoning is just a child's reasoning. What, what if we just want to go back to Egypt? What if we think we need to go back to Egypt, just like what Israel is doing in, in the story uh, in Numbers 21? But what if we just don't understand God's love because we are, are taking it out of the story that's being told in the book of John and then the rest of the Gospels and in the whole Bible of, of God coming and loving us in, in person? See, if we start with the starting point, we treat it as if God is in fact all loving, and we, we trace it back, we work back from there, then we can find what our biggest need probably is. Right? We may think our biggest needs are one thing, but God's love, when we trace it out and see where it goes, shows us what our biggest need is. And our biggest need, from what we find here in the book of John and the rest of the Bible, is, is eternal life. That's what John says here. Now, Eternal life is maybe not the most helpful translation of that phrase. Literally what it means is life in the age to come. So a better life than living in the wilderness or living in Egypt. Uh, not, it's not living forever. I think that when we read eternal life, we think it's just like, oh, cool, God wants us to live forever. Uh, that's awesome. And it's not that it's not that. I, I, I do, do think there's a component to where like death is gone in the age to come, so you're, you're not going to have to worry about death. But... But literally what's being talked about is a sort of 
like just like Israel's being brought to the promised land, Jesus is bringing the promised land to us now, and it's called the age to come. And this is our greatest need, is to live in this place that has been prepared for human flourishing because it is filled to the brim with God's presence, His peace, His, His meaning for things, um, our, our happy vocation, uh, the promise of living with Him, and, and His love. And that's what, God, what Jesus is bringing to us in the present now. That's what life in the age to come is about. And we, we experience that now, and we have the hope that it will come someday fully in the future. And so when we look at this love and we sort of unpack it, we start to actually just figure out what God's love looks like, we find at the very center of it, there's loss. That's actually the key to it. Um, it sort of proves the love. Uh, for many people, like we're, we're talking about how people might think about the idea of God's love. What, what we, we mean when we say that a lot of times is that God gives us everything we want and then he leaves us alone to enjoy it, to do whatever we want with it. Uh, he, just like... Just like a rich parent who, who gives their kids whatever they want, but tra- is traveling for work all the time, but makes sure they get into the best schools, gets them to the best jobs with their connections, but there's no real relationship. There's no real sacrifice to that. When in reality, God's love is defined by sacrifice. God's love means taking pain and suffering and the results of rejection and evil, that poison, on himself. And so God's love is actually committed to loss for us. That's what God's love looks like. That's what we're talking about when we talk about this lifting up on the pole that happens with Jesus that takes on the poison for us in venomous snakes. And this is a love that is offered to us indiscriminately. It's not fitting the people that it's offered to because we're just like Israel. Israel's story is the story of the whole world. Now I've had a few moments in my life where I've experienced the love where I, I don't feel like I deserve it and you just don't know what to do. You just kind of feel awkward. If you've ever had that feeling where you just experience a type of love that you just can't, you just don't understand how to respond to it, that's what this is, but it's on steroids, okay? That's how we should feel when we experience this love. And so uh, Jesus can, or John continues on in verses 17 and 18. He sort of unpacks this even more. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So we can be like Israel in the book of Numbers. We can shut ourselves off from this love, from the the age to life and the age to come that God is bringing us through his love. But John says when we do that, we are bringing upon ourselves a sort of self-condemnation. That's what he means when he says that uh, God doesn't come to condemn the world, but we can still be condemned because we're shutting ourselves off from this. And we, we do this oftentimes by our best wisdom, by rationalizing ourselves into thinking life lies back there, back in Egypt, when really life lies forward into what God is bringing us into. And, and so um, what we end up doing is this sort of uh, condemnation here is like a jail cell. But it's one that's locked from the inside. It's one that, that is a self-imposed uh, prison sentence. That's what he means when he talks about condemnation here. And John's specific term for this is darkness. We see this in verse, verses 19 to 21. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light 
and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that the what they have done has been seen in the sight of God. Okay, think of Israel in Numbers 21. They didn't want to find life in God or in the promised land. They were more comfortable with the familiarity of Egypt. And what I think, if we could translate that into what John is saying here, we could call that darkness. They were more comfortable with darkness. And darkness is just wherever the kingdom of God isn't, wherever God's love is absent. This is the realm where God's presence is, is, is not normal, but it's an intrusion into. It's, and it's a place where it's not the normal thing for God to be. God reaches in the darkness. That's what the light is about. It casts a light onto us. It shows us what it looks like to live in the darkness. But that's an uncomfortable thing. It's not what the darkness is used to. It's a place where there's another king. In Egypt, it's Pharaoh. Uh, and it's another way of life, which, which is marked by darkness. Now, one of the things about darkness, and one of the things I want us to kind of really reflect on as we talk about this today, and we talk about experiencing God's love and what it looks like for us to, to find that, is that in the darkness, we're told that vulnerability is a weakness, okay? But here's the thing about God's love. As we've unpacked it so far, and as we, we reflect on what it means for us to respond to that love, is we find that, that uh, God's love is vulnerable, and it's experienced in vulnerability, C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Four Loves, to love at all is to be vulnerable. To truly love in the way that we learn from Scripture, that the way that we see God love is to be in complete vulnerability. And that's our sort of our final application today, is that, that we, have to, we have to understand that God's love for us shines brightest in the darkness. Okay? The light, the love is that you're wanted, you're desired, you're pursued, and so even in your messiness, even with all your faults, uh, even when you feel alone, when you feel like you're at a breaking point, when you're numb, when you're bored, uh, when your heart is contested by loves for things other than God, that's when the light shines into us, uh, into our hearts, and we find that we are, are wanted, we're desired, we're pursued. I can speak from personal experience on this. Uh, in college, I had a several year period where I just kind of felt like I was slowly being brought to the end of myself in all sorts of different, uh, in all sorts of different situations and different aspects of my life, in school, in relationships with romantic relationships, relationships with fr some friends, economically, in, in not knowing what I want to do with my, with my life, like kind of thinking I had it all figured out and then having that kind of laid bare in front of me. Uh, just like in all these different ways, I feel like I kept getting drawn to the end of myself. And I can honestly say, like, I've never experienced God's love in a deeper way than that. And it was, but, but here's the thing. It felt like I'd painted a picture that in the dark I thought was just brilliant. Okay, like, like a blindfolded person painting something and thinking, this is going to look so awesome. It must look so good. But you can't actually see it because it's dark. And then the light sh shown on that, the light of God's love, showed it by my life, shown upon that painting, and I was like, oh, this is, this is ugly. This is not a good-looking painting, right? It's like um, uh, I had been stripped down until all I had left was God and his love. And I was vulnerable. I was at the end of myself. I was exposed. I had nothing to hide in anymore. And, and it was in that moment that I experienced God's love the most. Only then could I really truly, maybe for the first time in my life, even though I, I was a Christian before that, 
that was the first time I could really grasp God's vulnerable love because I myself was in a state of vulnerability. My vulnerability let me know about his vulnerability. And it wasn't my wisdom. It wasn't my wealth. It wasn't my trying to control everything that led me to experience that God. It was actually my vulnerability. It was being stripped away of all of that. That was when I could truly experience God's vulnerable love is because I myself was in a place of vulnerability instead of trying to reach up and grasp him for myself with something I had built, which was just playing with sandcastles in the dark is all it ever was. And so because of what it looks like to experience this, because of what we we see in John, what we find from other people in scripture, uh, what what I can attest to in my own life, God's love is always going to feel like an intrusion. Okay? Almost every single time we experience it, it's going to come in some level of discomfort. And if, so if you're feeling that like loving God is super easy and there's no problems, I actually might want to challenge you to say, like, are you really experiencing God's love? Or are you experiencing the love of a God that you've constructed on your own? Seriously. I, I think that's a question to ask yourself. Okay? Because God's love really shows up to us in our breaking points when we understand the weight of that love. We understand the glory of that love and how it comes to us when we feel most unworthy of it. But when we're there, when we're in that place, the reason that it is such a fantastic thing to experience God's love is because it comes to us like a healing balm opposed to a sore or a cut on us, right? Only in can you feel that healing come when you have the cut, when you have the vulnerability there. And so God's love is experienced in vulnerability because it itself is vulnerable, dying on a cross. It is God's pulsing, beating heart, coursing through with love, exposed, vulnerable on a cross, hanging there because that is the position that he had to be in in order to give us life. And so like Moses, he brings us life. And like the snake, he brings us life, hanging on that pole, taking our poison onto him. And so Nicodemus couldn't grasp this. This is the thing, at least in the moment. We, we, we think Nicodemus actually did come to, to believe in Jesus later in the book. But in this moment, he couldn't grasp that. And I, wanna, I pray that we're not Nicodemus in this time, especially when many of us will be feeling very vulnerable. We're feeling vulnerable in the midst of this pandemic, which has stripped us of all these things that we have built up around ourselves that we think give us life. Our control, our wealth, our freedom, All of these things have been taken away from us uh, and we don't have a choice in the matter. And I actually want to challenge you to see that as a grace from God because it allows us to sort of experience his love in a way that maybe you've never experienced before. Whether you have been following Jesus your whole life or you have yet to to really truly meet Jesus. Wherever you're at, I want to encourage you to be seeking out Jesus' love and expecting that to come to you. And don't don't fight against that vulnerability, but I want you to embrace that, okay? All right, so um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go into a time of, of Q&A if we have any questions. Okay, Julie's saying we don't have any questions, so I'm going to pray. We're going to do communion, and then we're going to finish with a benediction. So if you have uh, communion stuff, now's the time to grab it while I'm praying, um, and um, and then we will, we will do that together. Father, we are... Lord, I don't know how often we, we truly grasp this, what, what your love looks like and how, uh, what it means for us to experience that vulnerability. I pray that you would give us the gift of vulnerability 
right now, Lord. Help strip us of ourselves, of the things we've built up around our lives that we think will help us to experience you, but actually are hindering us from knowing your vulnerable love. Help us to be in that place in this time, but help us to experience your love in new and fresh ways in the midst of this crazy, ridiculous pandemic that is coming on on us, Lord. Uh, we, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is lifted up on the cross to take our poison on himself. Amen.